Hello, and welcome to the Message Makeover podcast. My name is Dan Cooney, and I'm joined by my colleague, Dean Brenner. Good morning, Dean. Good morning, Dan. All right. Today, we are excited to interview Dr. Steven Rogelberg about the science and occasional mania around workplace meetings. Dr. Rogelberg is a professor of organizational science, management, and psychology at UNC Charlotte. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Surprising Science of Meetings, and he's authored scores of publications addressing team effectiveness, leadership, engagement, health, and employee well-being. In 2017, he was the recipient of the prestigious Humboldt Prize, Germany's version of the Nobel Prize. He has recently appeared on CBS This Morning, the BBC NewsHour, and NPR, and we are thrilled to welcome him to the message makeover. If you think that your meetings could be more effective, stay tuned. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, good morning, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning. It's truly a pleasure. That's great. Well, we note in your book a suggestion to add a little time pressure to meetings. So if you're game, let's gavel this one open and dig right in. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So, uh, Stephen, we're always interested in how someone got to be who they are. You know, you're not born a prize-winning expert and best-selling author on meeting science. So if you would, just share with us uh, maybe a turning point or two that led you down your path. Sure. Well, um, you know, that's a fun question. And, um, you know, uh, the, the brief bio is so I was born in New York City, but I grew up in Los Angeles. And I was definitively a very playful, um, not very serious kid at all. And this extended into college. Um, and then during my junior year in college, uh, my father uh, called and he said, Stephen, I want you to come home this weekend and I want you to let us know what you're going to do when you graduate. And frankly, I had not given this even an ounce of thought. But at that point, I was getting my first A in college and the class was industrial organizational psychology. So I went home and told my father, I am going to get my doctorate in industrial organizational psychology. <laughs> and so that's how I fell into it. And But once I got to grad school, it really was a great fit. Um, I very much enjoyed kind of that concentrated learning. I was drawn to the field because um, I love this idea of trying to do science around problems that are really practically vexing for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this one certainly is. For sure. I'm glad that you were able to give your dad an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, there would have been consequences if I did not give him yeah. an answer. Yeah, roger that. I think you and I actually were following the same blueprint in college at some point, but we'll leave that for another day. <laughs> so so uh, from your book, we, we were fascinated with some of the stats we saw. Here's just a few of the ones that really caught our eye. 55 million meetings a day, and if, if I remember correctly, that was in the U.S. alone. Half of them rated poor by attendees. 1.4 trillion spent annually on meetings, which, by the way, is about 8% of U.S. GDP. Managers averaging 23 hours a week in meetings. It, it's, it's, it's probably interesting to figure out how we got there uh, and, and maybe try to give uh, our listeners uh, you know, some ideas on how to get to a better place here, like some solutions around how to tackle some of these issues that we're all feeling. Uh, you, you've summed up a few of the suggestions in, in, in your book, but I'll, I'll let you take us where you want to go. So um, 
you want me to spend a few minutes of, of how we got here and then move to practical recommendations? Absolutely. That would be really valuable, right. I think. So, you know, meetings are in many regards an evolution. Yeah. Um, Right. When you think about the Industrial Revolution and there was it was all command and control. The only voice that mattered was the boss's voice. Yep. Um, well, we've kind of evolved from that. We've we've come to realize that employee voices matter, that the workplace can be a, actually more effective and more productive and more innovative to the extent that there is inclusion and that employee engagement is important. So. Um, a world without meetings is much more problematic. Uh, we need meetings for communication, cooperation, consensus, decision-making, and in many regards, organizational democracy takes place in meetings. Mm -hmm. yep. So the goal and the hope of the book is never to espouse the elimination of meetings. It's just to espouse making meetings better. And interestingly, um, you know, what the research shows is you know, meetings are not either good or bad that really the best way of thinking about meetings is there's productive time and wasted time in every meeting. Mm -hmm. And so there's this ratio. And I never believe that you could get to 100% productive time, nor do I think that would actually even be desirable because I think sometimes good stuff happens in those um, non-productive times. But I think what we find in our research is that that ratio is out of whack. That, you know, typically you're, we're finding that about 50% of meeting time is good use is a good use of time. Um, and I think a goal of 80% seems to be what we want to strive for. Mm -hmm. That's great. And, 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 and what are some of the solutions that, that you have sure. seen working to start getting us on that path towards that 80%? Okay. Um, so there's a lot. Um, you know, clearly I wrote a whole book about it. And <laughs> right. I've been you know, doing the science for about 25 years, and there's a lot of paths. Um, I'm ha let me share a few. Sure. Um, the good news is there's no magic formula to making meetings better. It's not like you do A, then B, then C, and the result is a good, a good meeting. Um, you know, really what, this, what I advocate for and I think is consistent with the science is that we just want leaders to be intentional. We want them to start thinking about their meetings. Um, we want them to embrace the mindset that they are a steward of others' time. And once you have that mindset of being a steward, you approach a meeting very, very differently, right? You no longer just want to do things out of habit. Yeah. You want to make good choices. And interestingly, we adopt this mindset all the time when it comes to meeting with an important customer sure. or a boss's boss, right? Those people leaving our meeting saying that was terrible <laughs> is so upsetting to us. So we give it thought. Right. So as soon as a leader embraces this mindset and starts giving thought to the meeting, well, now they're, they're thinking a little bit more carefully about who really needs to be there. They're thinking more carefully about, well, how should we conduct the meeting? Um, you know, should we, should I share, you know, some agenda items are run by some people and others are not. Should we even experiment with trying silence in meetings as a tool for brainstorming? Um, you know, and just kind of thinking through the process and it really just takes three minutes. It's really all it takes to just give the process some time so that when people arrive to the, your event, the thing that you called you have a plan and you're ready to go. Yeah, it's I, I, I love I love what you're saying here and, and we we test drive a few of the solutions 
uh, that you that you're talking about in your book, and one of the ones that we've I think seen work well is you know we have a team of seven and we have a monthly all hands meeting, which is up to a couple of hours once a month. We used to meet more frequently as a team, and we've really tried to reduce that. But what we do is we rotate who owns it, who hosts it. And I've heard you uh, talk in, in podcasts about the hosting part of the equation. And that was really fascinating to us. Could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we know a few things. Um, so first of all, the, the meeting leader is a host. Um, they did call the gathering together. And when we think about what hosts do... Um, these are the things that we would expect meeting leaders to do. So hosts welcome people. Hosts make people feel like their attendance is important, right? Hosts actively make introductions to people who don't necessarily know each other. Um, and the host is, is just dialed into the overall kind of mood of the event. And this actually matters. Uh, the research shows that the best predictor of collective mood in a meeting is the leader's mood. So if the leader comes in there with a kind of a positive mindset, that is contagious. It spreads. And that's actually important because when they're when groups are in a more positive mindset, they're actually more creative. They listen to each other more carefully. There's more constructive discourse. And this doesn't mean like I'm not at all arguing for faking it. I'm not at all arguing that you shouldn't be tackling big, ugly, vexing problems. What I'm arguing for is that no matter what the problem is, a leader still has control over their emotions. They can still come in there and say, listen, we have important work to, to do, but I'm really grateful that we're all here together and that I feel that you know we put our time in. I think we're going to come up with some good, good suggestions, good solutions. And just starting that meeting off well, um, especially – and I'll share one last research finding and I'll stop – especially because our research also shows that people – typically experience meetings just as the same way that they experience interruptions and interruptions typically make us a little cranky so people enter into meetings in not the best mindset and this is why it's even doubly important for leaders to try to turn that around so that's part of being the host is to get people into a good mindset and so this might be a good time i just want to there's a couple of uh, good meeting jokes in your book, and I just wanted to repeat a couple because I really enjoyed them. So one of them was, if I die, I hope it's during a staff meeting because the transition to death would be so subtle. I love that. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure the dinosaurs died out when they stopped gathering food and started having meetings to discuss gathering food. So, you know, you could try some meeting humor as a host to get people in the proper mindset. You know what? With the beauty of working to improve meetings is that things are just so bad that you making any effort is going to pay dividends. And what's even, I think, even more exciting is people are going to appreciate it. Right? Everyone is grousing and frustrated by this. And if you kind of take on the challenge of making your meetings better, like even this very simple act of reaching out to the people in your meetings, your regularly scheduled meetings, and basically saying, hey, I wanna make sure that these are the best uses of our collective time. I've sent out this little survey, tell me what's working well, not so well, and ideas to make things better. Yeah. Get that information Amazing. and see what's there. I mean, that is such a powerful statement, right? That's the embodiment yes. of being a good steward. So simple. Yep, and just, just try. <laughs> How about trying to do better? Is good. Yep. So, so this is um, 
just shifting just a little bit, and this is something that uh, you and I went back and forth on email uh, a couple of months ago. I was so fascinated by this, and you're like, oh yeah, this is very old science, but I'm going to quote from one of your papers back in the early 90s, and this is around group performance. So it says, and this is, uh, usually group performance has been found to be inferior to the performance of the best individual. Uh, overall, groups perform better than their average individual member and worse than their best individual member. These findings suggest that groups are not performing optimally. And then there's another piece that I'll add. Ideally, the concept of a small group of people working together, capitalizing on each other's diverse knowledge and differing perspectives, and finally creating an effective solution for a difficult problem is attractive. Yet this ideal is rarely achieved. And so, I mean, to me, that's, we get it. There's good reasons for having meetings that adds to cooperation. You mentioned organizational democracy connecting people, all of these things clearly important in the workplace. But when it comes to just pure performance to take on a question or come up with a solution, it's so interesting that the performance may not be there. And I just wondered if you would comment on that because I'm not sure that that's really uh, understood generally. Uh, you know, obviously we're having 55 million meetings a day. So I'd, I'd, right. love, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, what... Um, it's really fun. It was really fun to hear you read that out loud. That was actually my master's thesis. Okay. Um, wow. <laughs> and so I had no idea at 23 years old what I'd be doing now. So it was, it was really fun to hear what I was thinking back then. Um, you know, I think what that speaks to is the fact that meetings are supposed to be um, an event that promotes inclusion but they don't deliver, right? So if you think about it as an event that promotes inclusion, the hallmark of that event would be that voices relevant to the task at hand would elevate. Right. And if, if critical voices elevated, then the group would always outperform the best individual, right? Because that best individual's voice would have been there, but so would someone else's voice that potentially would have built on it and that little add-on would have then created more of a synergistic effect. Right. So, but that seems to not happen. So, you know, uh, so what, what can we do about it? And there's, the book talks about a lot of different ways that meetings can occur. Um, one example that tends to promote greater amounts of inclusion is silence, is absolute silence. The research shows that when groups brainstorm in silence, they generate nearly twice as many ideas, and the ideas generated tend to be more innovative and disruptive, right? Because people aren't editing what they're saying. They, you don't have those social dynamics at play, and everyone's able to talk at once. So silence actually elevates voices and creates even more innovative outcomes. So I'm not at all arguing that every group should meet in silence, but I like the idea that if a group is trying to engage in some important brainstorming, <laughs> consider silence as an opportunity to actually have more inclusion and engagement. Okay, so uh, that's I, I love that suggestion. Um, practically, lay that out a little bit for us, a little bit more spe specifics. Oh, it's uh, so easy. Yeah, great. <laughs> it's so easy. So A, you can either go old school and give everyone index cards, and they write on the index card, they put their ideas down, and it goes in the middle of the table face down, 
then after 10 minutes or so after the brainstorming, you have a recording of all the ideas because they're on index cards. Right. And then those index cards could be sorted into piles based on their conceptual similarity. Mm-hmm. So that's the old school. Yep. But then there's, there's a whole bunch of apps out there now. Um, there's a variety of companies like Klaxoon um, that have these apps that people can engage in silent brainstorming all on their phones, their computers, and the information is kind of thrown into a document um, and there are virtual index cards. So easy peasy. Love it. L- let me let me go back to the, the, the pieces of research that Dan referenced though. And, and on, on one hand, it sounds like you're, you're suggesting that you know the the group, you know, getting people around the table uh, to brainstorm isn't optimal, isn't effective. But what I think you're really saying, connecting the dot to the second thing that Dan read, was that it's really about group size, and that bigger is not always better, right? More voices is not always better. It sounds like you're saying group size is is the biggest issue, and the people that should be around the table that are integrally involved in the conversation should be around the table. But if it gets too big, it gets suboptimal. Did I? Am I interpreting that right? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's fair. Um, you know, the facilitation skills of a leader have to be um, really quite impressive as group size increases. Yes. Um, and leaders typically receive no training on how to make <laughs> um, their meetings better. Uh, so once we start surpassing a certain number. You know, whether that number is four, whether that number is eight, it's really tied to the skills of the person. Um, that's when perhaps the need for kind of alternative ways of working increases. But even with that said, a group of three or four, would they also could benefit from silence, right? right? You can get some funky dynamics in a group of three or four people. You know, where that most junior person, that most introverted person, you know, their ideas might not become as privileged as the others, given these, you know, these extraneous variables. So group size can absolutely amplify the need to do alternative things, but it doesn't. um, But small groups don't um, eliminate the need to be creative. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. We really appreciate that. So, so we want to transition now, uh, Stephen, into what we call our big five questions. And these are questions that we ask every guest on the Message Makeover podcast. And, and I'm going to go first. Uh, and and, and the, these aren't hard. Don't worry. These are pretty easy questions. But we try to get a little continuity among our guests and, 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 and see what themes pop out for our listeners. So here's the first question. We would love to know who your, and I'm going to use a very colloquial term here, who your communication crush is. Who's the person that when you hear them communicate, you really admire, you aspire to be more like them? Uh, you know, this could be a historical figure, a teacher you've had, a colleague. You can take us wherever you want to go. Who's your crush? Okay, that's a fun question. Um, so my best friend is named Pete Kahn, and his dad is named Herb Kahn. And um, I admire Herb Kahn. Um, Herb is just a phenomenal communicator, and I've learned so much from him. Uh, namely, um, he just has a gift of when he's engaging um, with another human, he asks um, really interesting questions and he keeps the conversation going, but constantly is clarifying, um, trying to get into that other person's thinking patterns and mindset. And he doesn't lose his cool. Um, so that type of engagement yeah. uh, just allows the conversation to progress, I think, in really constructive 
ways. Um, you know, that he still looks for, you know, opportunities to potentially assert contrary content. But because he's invested in the question asking and the perspective taking, it's, it's received, I think, in a very positive way. Um, and I just really admire that. Um, so when I've seen him have kind of challenging conversations with others, um, it's just a, a gift to behold. It's a really generous way of, of communicating. It's very other people focused. Right. It's That's a mindset great. of curiosity. I'm, I'm really digging on this new book by Kate Murphy. <laughs> You're not listening. Uh, and so they're talking about a mindset of discovery and curiosity when you're listening, which is a key part of communications and one that is not necessarily talked about as much as getting your own point across. So, uh, the next one is, uh, how do you stay afloat in a sea of overwhelm? I think that's a Seth Godin term, but obviously this book is taking off your research, all, all of your commitments at the university. Any tips or techniques of, of staying afloat in a sea of overwhelm? I'm lucky. Um, I pedal in science, and most people don't. Um, and I'm constantly doing new science around this topic. So the work that I'm doing um, is inherently compelling. I think science is incredibly interesting to people. Um, Evidence-based practices connect. So I feel like my voice is sufficiently different um, that it seems to um, maintain um, its compelling nature to folks. I've been blown away how you know the shelf life of the book I've written just it seems to keep extending. Um, you know when you write a book you you have very low hopes. you don't <laughs> think it's gonna go go very far. And the fact that it's still making these best of lists for uh, one year later and it's still showing up in the media as much as it is and I'm still doing these wonderful podcasts like yours um, I think just speaks to the fact that it's a different type of a voice and that a science-based voice can really be interesting to people that's great that's great so so let's let's stick with your experience here next question what is your most cringeworthy communications moment the, the time where you said something and you're like, wow, wish I had that back. And, and if you could take that to a lesson learned, that would be even better. Um, well, I'll just relay uh, this. Um, an incident that unfortunately has happened to me multiple times, mm -hmm. um, which is during the introduction, um, my introduction before going on a stage or what have you, um, it's multiple times I've wound up spilling my drink on my crotch uh, right at that moment. Um, and I don't know exactly how that happens, um, but I have definitely had a spilling problem at the most inopportune time. This has happened more and than once? It has. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, so I, um, you know, when, when you're, you're sitting there and you're, you're drenched, you, you kind of recognize you have limited choices and... Um, I've, you know, how I approach it is I really try to connect with the audience. Um, I try to decrease distance with the audience, no matter how large of a group I'm speaking to, I really try to be myself and who I am and to try to make it feel like a small venue. So where that comes from, where you, when, when you spill water, um, <laughs> all over your crotch, you just embrace that moment. You know, you go up on stage and you show everyone. <laughs> you have to talk about it, right? You can't ignore it. It's unignorable, you just, right? 
you just show everyone and you move forward in a positive way. It's funny because we get asked in our workshops a lot, uh, you know, what do I do if I make a mistake? Do I acknowledge the mistake? You know, how do I handle it when I've obviously screwed something up or, you know, my flies down or whatever it is. And, and our advice is always some version of just embrace the moment and just, you know, not, don't be afraid to show that, you know, be human in that moment. So I, I think so. I think people really appreciate it. Um, and, um, yeah, I, and I think it's, it's fun. It's, you know, it's an opportunity and, um, you know, every kind of bad thing that happens to you really is kind of, there is an opportunity there to try to make it into a win. That's awesome. So uh, I'll make you feel better. Uh, on my first campaign, I was uh, a political aide in Oklahoma, and we were meeting a very large donor with the uh, gubernatorial candidate, and uh, we really wanted to impress this gentleman. And uh, we had breakfast, and I was we're at the YMCA in Oklahoma City, and I spilled a very large orange juice onto his uh, clutch. So uh, your own uh, is better than somebody else's. That's all I'll say. All right. So this is, uh, we're continuing down on our big five for on thumbs up or thumbs down. We're going to give you a communication idea, tool, or concept. And you tell us whether you think these things will either grow or diminish in importance over the next few years. Okay. So one, first one is stand up or walking meetings. Thumbs up. All right. Thumbs up. PowerPoint. Uh, thumbs down. Yeah. Okay. Open floor plans, uh, office space. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. All right. Great. Those are our thumbs up or thumbs down. Let's go back to the PowerPoint for a second though. We teach communication skills for a living and it's funny in our line of work, we teach people how to use PowerPoint better as part of our offer. And I always say to people, you know, believe it or not, this is ironic, but I actually hate PowerPoint. And, and, and we think it gets in the way of a lot of good communication. It sounds like you agree. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as, as I mean, I think you all know this better than I. Every tool, when it's overused, right. can become problematic. Um, so I, I absolutely believe PowerPoint has its place. Yeah. But it just has to be leveraged in a more disciplined manner. Um, and um, so I just think that this wholesale use of PowerPoint in every single setting with these really large decks um, is just going to lose its ability to really be an effective uh, vehicle. Um, but I don't, I think it can absolutely be used more strategically. And if you're a leader and you do do it in a more disciplined way, um, I think your voice is truly amplified. Well said. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. All right. So our fifth and final question here. Uh, your best communications coaching advice for a person at the front end of their career. Okay. So first I, I should say that um, when I was at the beginning of my career, these are not things that I was mature enough <laughs> to fully embrace. So I am sharing advice that the old version of me did not do necessarily a great job with. Um, so I'll go back um, to, I think, to some of the lessons that um, I learned from Herb Kahn and then add to it. Um, so I guess my best coaching advice is, you know, for someone early in their career is try to listen more than you speak. Um, learn actively um, from others um, what, you know, kind of what is effective in others' communication approaches, but also what's not effective. Um, I encourage people early in the career to actually engage in journaling. 
Um, the research on journaling is incredibly positive. That an individual who just takes a couple minutes at the end of the day to, to jot down what did they learn that day actually promotes incredible growth. Um, I encourage individuals to you know find a candid mentor um, that can share with them you know difficult feedback, and then once you hear that difficult feedback, you know think of it as a gift. And you know the, the harder the feedback is, the better the gift is. And then you know set out a path to try to be responsive to that, um, and to grow and to learn. And then finally, I would say that you know um, people. You know, people are so easily distracted these days that for someone early in their career, that if you display high conscientiousness, that you, you know, when people send you emails, you know, you respond when, you know, you sending thank you notes, basically being plugged into these conscientious skills can very much serve as a differentiator. Yeah, Love it. that's absolutely true. Um, those were awesome. It, several were around listening and that, uh, again, going back to that mindset of curiosity, uh, which <clears throat> you know, Herb Kahn uh, displayed, I think that's really good advice. <clears throat> Stephen, this is a good place to wrap up because uh, one of the things we also learned is to make sure you end a meeting well and on time. I believe I'm looking at the clock and we are about one minute away from our agreed upon time. So we are so pleased and thankful, grateful for your presence here today on the Message Makeover. We are excited about your book. I think uh, it was recently named by Washington Post, the number one leadership leadership book to watch for. We love the meeting, the, uh, love the book, The Surprising Science of Meetings. We enjoyed the conversation. Grateful for your wisdom, knowledge, and good humor. I had a blast. You, you both did a wonderful job. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. It was great Thanks to have so you. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. Wow. That was a great conversation, Dan. I love that. He's, he's terrific. Obviously very well practiced and uh, gives great answers. Yeah. This was not his first rodeo. No. That's for sure. So, so I thought it'd be valuable for our listeners here. If we just quickly catch, uh, wrap up a few of the big themes that jumped out to each one of us and then we'll, uh, then we'll wrap this whole thing up. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So number one, be a good host. When you're hosting a meeting, when you're bringing people together, you're interrupting them from doing something that they probably was important uh, to them to get done that day. You're interrupting them. So your first job as the leader of a meeting is to get people into a good mindset. And you're, the way you come to the meeting, your mindset is going to be contagious to the others. I thought that was big. The other thing is to make sure you're elevating voices, not just the people who are naturally uh, the speakers up, but maybe the more of the introverts. We got to figure out a way to elevate voices. He mentioned, you know, one way to do that by silent brainstorming, but there are other ways. And then third, I love that his communications crush, crush was Herb Kahn. And when he talked about Herb Kahn, he didn't talk to him necessarily about speaking. He talked to him about the way that he listened and the way that he was able to engage people on a really deep, deep manner. That's great. Uh, so here's what popped out for me. Uh, there is no one single solution to running better meetings. There's a lot of ways to think about it. There's a lot of ways to do it. And he really was just encouraging creativity. Uh, the second thing that jumped out for me is he, he, he encouraged everybody to think about being a steward of other people's time and, and, and just think about not being a waster of other people's time. That's something that comes up in our workshops all the time. So that really jumped out for me. 
And then the third one, which really wasn't just about meetings, but it was just overall communication and overall how we deal with each other in the workplace. He talked about displaying a high level of conscientiousness. And that picks up on the don't waste other people's time, but it also picks up on responding to people's email and just acknowledging that you got something, you know, giving them some response on the phone call, just letting people know that you heard them, that you, that you, that you're, that you're with them, that you're not, that they're, they're not communicating in a vacuum is really where that took me. But what, what a great conversation with Professor Rogelberg and, and real, a real gift for us and our listeners to get a few minutes with him today. Absolutely. You know, that high conscientious skills, I'd never heard it said that way. I, I think we're going to hear more about that concept in the future. His next book, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that was great. Uh, we really appreciate you listening to The Message Makeover. For Dean Brenner and our whole team at the Latimer Group, I'm Dan Cooney. Thanks for listening to The Message Makeover podcast. The Message Makeover podcast is presented by the Latimer Group, the experts in persuasive communication, corporate training, and executive coaching delivered with impact. For more information on the Latimer Group and for more episodes of the Message Makeover podcast, look for us on iTunes, Google Play, and online at thelatimergroup.com.